Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Michelle Brune. Uh, she has her first book out, Small Scale Homesteading, A Sustainable Guide to Gardening, Keeping Chickens, Maple Syruping, Preserving the Harvest, and more. And Michelle also blogs at Forks in the Dirt. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks for having me, Laura. It's fun to be here again. Yeah, it is fun. So tell us where you're um, at right now. So I am coming to you live from the <laughs> Garden Communicators International Conference right in Minneapolis at the Hilton Hotel here. It's a group of garden communicators, all kinds of gardening throughout the country and the world. We've got a couple of Canadians, a couple um, people from England here, um, just talking about how we get the gardening word out to everybody, really, um, mm-hmm. through books, radio, podcasts, all the things, all yeah. the channels. All the channels. And so um, one thing I wanted to reach out, because you also sent an email um, just um, this week, and it's like, it's August and I'm in love. And I love that. So why are you in love with August? Oh, my gosh. It's when all, it feels like all the seasons collide. It's when all your hard work has paid off since, I mean, we've been starting seeds in my little homestead since the end of February, right? And those onions are finally bulbing up. The celery is is there. So those are like those early, early season things. And then all the things you've planted and tended and like hopefully rescued from hail. (laughs) We've had a couple of crazy storms come through. All the things that you've been working on to tend to your garden, you're getting to eat it fresh, warm off the vine. If it's a tomato, you know, the peppers are starting to come in. Everybody's happy. The chickens are laying like crazy, right? There's just, it's a, a time of abundance. I guess that's amazing time to be a Minnesotan. Yeah, exactly. And and really appreciating this this time of abundance. And even it's I think in times of struggle, it's even um the the act of moving towards joy and and seeing abundance is even more vital when things are tougher. I, absolutely. I think you know when we see destruction in nature or um just the way people aren't maybe respecting it as much um as we would hope to than being able to just do something and, and take a step towards something. I think that being in a small scale ho- homestead like I am, just I'm in suburbia, right? But there's so much we can do with the land that we have. Um, and that taking that is just really empowering. It really is. Okay, so uh, share a little bit of your background. Um, what, what brought you to this work? Yeah, well... I've always written things. Um, I've always interviewed people, and I used to do that uh, for other companies. And then I got to step away from that uh, those jobs, and now I do it for for everyone. Really, is what I feel like. I don't work for myself. I think I work for people who are interested in growing food, um, eating more local food, living off the land a little bit more, and then just really living more sustainably and all. And I think I love being able to interview other people that are doing that too. So I feel you, Laura. I like get where you're coming from on all this stuff. Um, but I typically interview farmers mm-hmm. and like what they're doing. Okay, great. And then tell my own story along the way as well. And so where do people see your work? And um, I know it's Forks in the Dirt is one blog. and Yep. So I write um, blogs for Forks in the Dirt, but I also write a lot for a Northern Gardener magazine, which is the Minnesota State Horticultural Society's um, quarterly magazine now. They used to be six um, issues a, a year, and now they're four. Mm-hmm. And then um, online for them as well. I teach classes online. And then I write for Hobby Farms magazine, Mother Earth News magazine and 
possibly some others coming up as well. Cool. It's been really fun. And I, I co-authored a book, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. So, did, I mean, did you grow up on a farm? So I grew up um, with two parents who definitely valued nature um, and we had some land, but we definitely did not have anything like a farm. Um, my dad worked for the Department of Natural Resources. We had, you know, so there was always that aspect in, in my life. Um, we went up to the North Shore or camping all the time. So I just got to spend a lot of time immersed in nature. Um, grew up on like a peat bog, what I call it. It's like, it was a fen. That sounds a lot prettier. Fen. It's, it's a, a great fen. word in Scrabble, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, being able to spend time like looking into the ponds in there, mm -hmm. uh, just there's everything was so interconnected. Um, and I think that value has stuck with me. And that's, I think, something I've I've just been able to take forward with me in my gardening, like career, love, joy, all the things kind of combined together. So describe the place that you garden. Describe describe the land and what type of things you're growing and your experiences. Yeah. Um, well, I am on about 0.4 acres in White Bear Lake, which is the northeast corner of the Twin Cities, just outside the ring there. And I've got sandy soil that I have been able to amend over the years with lots of compost. Thank you, chickens. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, to grow lots and lots of food. Um, so I grow in ground and in raised beds. Uh, I grow lots of annual vegetables and lots of perennial fruits and some perennial vegetables, uh, lots of shrubs, some, some fruit trees. And Laura, I know you've got some fruit trees finally coming, yeah. coming into their own, yeah. which is so exciting. It um, really it, yeah. it is, is really fun. Uh, maybe I'll, um, yeah, cause I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much the same area that, you know, that point three or point. So a, a larger yard with the had, but now do your neighbors also do this or um, are you kind of an outlier in your area or? <laughs> I've got a couple neighbors who are definitely adding more vegetables to their backyard, and that's really fun to see. And then some are very much flower gardeners, and then some just have completely mowed lawn backyards, and that's okay, too. Like, they're, they're happy. They're using their yards to the best of their ability, and I think that that's really important to let people use their yards as long as they're not hurting the wildlife or they're not using chemicals necessarily. They're just... They don't have the time, they don't have the interest, mm -hmm. but they will hold that land. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's an okay thing to do too. They're letting their kids run around their backyards and use it that way rather than growing food. And I think that's beautiful too, because the kids are still outside then. You know, I totally appreciate what you said there, Michelle, because I, you know, in in theory, I believe totally in being nonviolent and how we move towards just embracing. There's 8 billion people on this planet or billions of people on this planet, and there's billions of ways of looking at life it's not reduced to one way so this not everyone's going to do it this one way and this is the one way to garden or this is the thing to do but it's <laughs> it's finding the rhythm that works for you and what brings you joy absolutely and i think that that is kind of the key to making any kind of like homesteading activity really and truly sustainable too you know there's books out there that say how to be self-sufficient on a quarter acre and i just I don't want to be that person. I don't want to focus all of my energy on being like, I could use my yard that way, but I don't think that my family would necessarily benefit from like being stressed out about using 
that land that way rather than being able to have like we have a hockey rink in our backyard in the winter so my boys are outside enjoying all of the winter instead with friends and neighbors and and so that part of community and being able to use the land really the way your family um, best enjoys it without harming nature i would say because we are part of nature. And if we can remember that, and that when we're taking care of nature, we're taking care of ourselves, I think that that's a huge part of how I look at gardening and homesteading as well. I really do like that. In fact, as you said that, I was thinking about the code with doctors, you know, do no harm is the first thing. And and having that approach, do no harm, and it it means do no harm to your land. It also can mean do no harm to ourselves, right? And and how we find that place of um, peacefulness within ourselves, um, which I think is beautiful, but it's really challenging because it's not being modeled in many places. Oh, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of a push and pull, I think, sometimes where you have to because once you grow something, you want to take care of it. And if you're new to gardening and all of a sudden you see a pest, I have people message me or text me or, you know, Facebook message me. What what is this? Can I kill it? How do I get rid of it? And it's like maybe you don't need to get rid of it. Maybe it has a purpose. Maybe it's okay to let that bug eat a little bit of your leaves because it's actually feeding the birds that you need to eat the rest of the insects. And if there's insects in your your land, you're feeding other things that are also part of the whole ecosystem in your yard. I'm really glad you said that. Now, this that um, basic idea of uh, of of not being too freaked out when you see things like that bugs like for instance i i had these cherry tart cherries and i've had bugs on them for the last four or five years i've got next to no harvest zero harvest and i just thought okay they're just not going to produce whatever these bugs are whatever it is this year that's producing this year it's came back and it's like wow so now i got tons of tart cherries what do you do with tart cherries i, I don't really know <laughs> oh my gosh tart cherries there's oh my gosh i just make a simple like sauce with them and i have it over everything you can freeze it really easily so the easiest way to pit those tart cherries is just like with a straw like we all have like metal straws or now you know Mm -hmm. so you poke that little straw through there and that's how you get rid of the pit okay yep that's the easiest way to pit them and then yep i just make a little sauce add a little sugar or honey it's so good that sounds great. I will do that. And but I didn't know that tip of just using the straw because the bugs have always taken them. But and 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 so <laughs> I know. But and, and and but but I I think there was, was a big lesson for me personally this year of really just accepting that things come along. Like um, the 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 blueberries were fantastic. The the gooseberries got attacked by something. And like that one person you said, there's one one time I was like, should I start using some chemicals? Should I do this? And it was like, no. And somehow the nature sort of rebalanced itself and it was all okay. Yeah. And I will say too, it's not even on the pest thing, but on like the cycle of weather, because we've been having crazy weather this year. Right. So the strawberries in our area were pretty minimal this year because of the it was so dry at the time that they really needed to set fruit. And a lot of strawberry like pick your own farms that I communicate with they two of them that I know of actually mowed over their Mm. crops to save the plants for next year so we they got no harvest out of their strawberry plants this year Mm. so different places experience really crazy stuff but what I experienced in my backyard with my strawberries was that 
Yeah, it didn't do really well, but what came and flourished in place of the strawberries, I feel like Mother Nature kind of takes care of us this way. The raspberries mm. were insane this year. So it's like when one fruit doesn't produce, right. the same conditions will help another something along, especially when it's a perennial. And I think that that's really fun to be able to see as a gardener, too. Oh, without a doubt. And I mean, I feel very privileged to be in the same spot for um, more a couple decades. And so we were able to just, you know, plant. But I would love to move this also to having this in everywhere. I mean, to have these apartment buildings with little food forest and, you know, and, and, and the boulevards. And, and we're seeing this move. Um, but I know when you started your book, um, you started it with um, a saying that instead of self-sufficiency, how about communal abundance? Yeah. I mean, really, right? Isn't right. that, wouldn't that be so much better? <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd rather have a lot more than everyone else and just see them suffer, right? I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious there, but isn't that sort of like the dominant whatever thinking forms there seems to be or, yeah, or that's out there? I but just really think, yeah, when we all do better, we all do better. We all do I better. I think that is what it is. And I mean, when you talk about boulevards and stuff, I immediately went to like all the pollinator boulevard plantings that are happening. And I think that I think that that's a step in the right direction because when we take care of the pollinators, then there's going to be more things around to take care of us because we are really connected, not just to the plant world, but to the insect world as well. Right. And if, if we don't have that in place, but I, I guess when, when you originally said Boulevard, I wanted to kind of bring that to like, once we have this idea of planting for pollinators and we see not just mowed lawns in that area, then we can also envision food forests Mm -hmm. in those areas. And I think that it's like a really good stepping stone to to having more and more um, food grown in public places. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, why did you decide to write this book? Oh, well, um, Stephanie, my co-author, had written a couple books before, mostly on food preservation and like canning and fermenting. And she said, hey, you want to write a book together? And I said, yeah, I do. I think this would be really fun. So we came up with the idea, or she kind of had this, like, vision. And then when we worked together, it just morphed into this, like, whole homesteading thing where this is just what we do. This There's not, like, rocket science. There's no, like, really difficult steps. It's just choosing what you want to learn and then getting good at that so that really the things that are in here like here's the book once you start doing these things it becomes routine um, like we just did canned corn like we mm. corn we we can sweet corn every summer now and we wow. have for a couple of years and it's like the kids just know that they're going to spend a day shucking corn and then they're going to help me with this. Right. And then they know all winter that they get to eat this really delicious corn that came from the farm down the road and they feel connected to it and everything. So the first time doing it, it was stressful and like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I had to learn just like everybody else has to learn. There's a first time everybody does something. But let me tell you, year two even was so much easier. And now year three, four, it's like, it just kind of becomes old hat. And so I think taking that first step um, and you can learn, you can read so much online and you can listen to so many things. But if you have like a book, it's kind of like having that a recipe in your hand that you know is from a trusted resource that's different than um, 
like looking up something online, I guess. So that's really what we wanted to do is compile all this information into one place. How cool is that? So um, again, tell us the title of the book and we're going to take a break and we'll be um, back shortly. But uh, what's the title of the book and how do people connect with it? Because they can buy it directly from you on your website, right? Yeah. Yep. So it's small scale homesteading um, and you can get it wherever books are sold. You can find it through my website, forksinthedirt.com. And um, yeah, that's that's where it's at. Great. Well, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund and, uh, and this is AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us um, is Michelle Bruin. She's the author of Small Scale Homesteading. She homesteads in White Bear Lake um, in about a fourth of an acre, and she also blogs at Fork in the Dirt. We're taping this show on August 3rd, and on August 2nd was Overshoot Day. That means we are using more resources than the planet can handle. We are in, humans are living in a very unsustainable way, which is harmful to the entire planet. And this Overshoot Day, I encourage people to go on the website. It's overshootday.org because they have wonderful resources. So, Michelle, is that one of the reasons that you also practice um, homesteading is to is to uh, to help reduce your carbon footprint? Or do you think homesteading reduces carbon footprint? It can, for sure. Um, I, I think that that's a lot of... Um, the reasons that people start down this journey is they realize maybe they come from it from like the, the things that are in their food that they're eating are scaring them and they're realizing the chemicals that are in that. But then when you start looking at it, it's that the chemicals come from a different plant and then they're shipped to a processing, you know, a food processing plant. And then that's shipped to a distribution center. And then it finally makes it to a grocery store or that a f- piece of fresh produce is, you know, flown up from Chile in the middle of the winter. And these are just not sustainable practices. So I think with homestead, growing any amount of your food, even if it's fresh herbs, like on a windowsill, right? Like anybody can be a homesteader. I do think that that's a definite message from our book as well. And just kind of how we live our lives. We're doing this in suburbia. You know, we can, we can all make a difference. And I think looking at that overshoot day information is... I don't want to say it's scary because we've all, I feel like that like um, makes you stand still and not move forwards. But Mm -hmm. if you can take those small steps, um, everyone making those small steps is going to add up and hopefully a couple really big steps. (laughs) Yeah, or some giant leaps, some giant leaps, but but unless you're admitting the problem first. Um, So, I mean, um, and again, we want to say that homesteading um, for apartment owners, there's not like one way to homestead, right? I mean, there's, it's about, you know, learning from each other and finding what works for you. Yeah. And, you know, I just had mentioned in the last segment there about canning corn, and that is we don't grow our own sweet corn. I would probably have to devote like a large portion of my garden space to growing corn. So I let the farmers who I trust and know are growing really good corn sustainably themselves um, to grow that for us. So farmers market shopping is wonderful. Um, You know, being part of a CSA community supported agriculture, that's another great way to partake in like support local food, um, because I think eating local is a huge part 
of uh, moving moving that carbon footprint down, and we need it desperately to go down. <laughs> we need it desperately to go down, and um, and yeah, and and it's, so food. So phys- I'm not going to be able to grow all my own food, and I think that's the one thing that's really been um, revealing to me is the more I learn about gardening, the more I know I need farmers. It's nothing I do by myself. I need a community, and and I need to support that community. And this has been an especially tough year with the drought. So what have you been hearing from farmers and people? Well, farmers are um, either really glad that they have irrigation or they're really frustrated that they don't. Um, And it's a lot of times it is a financial um, question. Are they going to, you know, infrastructure add that or are they going to – a lot of times it's even like, are they going to get certified organic? Like all these things cost money and it's, it's making sure that they have a market to sell to as well in the end. Um, so it's been a tough year for farmers. It's ha- there haven't been as many in that I know of um, like a lot last year, last spring, not this spring, but last spring, a lot of farmers lost like greenhouse covers with the storms that rolled through because there were such crazy winds this year, there's been crazy storms, but it's been just really more isolated and almost more in the twin cities itself rather Mm -hmm. than outlying farm areas. So at least people aren't losing their greenhouses this year. (laughs) So it's like a silver lining. I'm looking for something positive, Laura. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, You know, I am too, or celebrating the positive. So I, um, I know, um, Describe soil life, because that is actually um, very important to combating our climate crisis, uh, is is soil life. So how is soil and and, um, soil life and climate, how are those connected? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, but basically soil is life. Soil is what grows the food, um, along with sun and water, much more than any kind of... um, fertilizer or anything we put into the soil. So you, if you can grow your soil and build a solid soil, you're going to have a much more um, uh, healthy garden. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking for a word and it's not coming to me. That's so frustrating sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you have that soil life in there, and we're talking about fungi, mycorrhizal, um, bacteria, things that are going to interact with those root tips of the plants that you're trying to grow. And science is still figuring out so many new things. Like, I mean, weekly, I feel like there's new discoveries being made in the symbiotic relationships between soil life and roots. And it's just still mind-blowing to me that, you know, we're still learning so much about this because it's so intricate. So in a teaspoon of soil, there can be like 9 billion, 10 billion microorganisms in that teaspoon. So that's more than the people on the planet right, in a teaspoon of soil. So all the interconnections that are going on within those, within that soil in all those life forms, that's what's actually growing the food. So if we can, we can give them what they need, which is organic matter to, to feed on um, in between times where there's roots in the ground. And in Minnesota, that's a good portion of the year. So we want to plant, be planting things that we can leave the roots in. So when you're harvesting, at the end of the season, a lot of times I'll just cut the, the plant off at the soil level so that the roots that are then deteriorating and decomposing in the soil, um, 
the soil life is the ones doing the decomposing. And so they have something to feed on. Also cover crops will do that as well. And for people looking for more information on that, I have blog posts on, on my website about that as well. So I want to make sure we talk a little bit about secession planning because it's August. Um, so tell us your thoughts on secession and can we still garden even though it's August? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, there are about... 65 days left of the growing season, if you look at official numbers. Um, and the Department of Natural Resources has a great um, web uh, page, a great site. Um, and I can't remember the specific, but if you look at last first frost dates, first freeze dates, Minnesota and DNR, you will come up with your like exact location. You can kind of go through and pick out on a map throughout the state. And it gives you like kind of a cross-reference piece on like percentages and the, and the temperatures on the dates. So you can choose like how much you want to play the garden games. Like if you think 20% chance is good enough for you, or if you're going to go up to 40% chance that it's going to freeze, you know, you play those numbers. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So what would you plant? What would you plant? Let's say um, I had something that didn't do well. I've got a spot so I can kind of clean out that spot. And I've, I've, I want to plant something in August. What type of plants would you suggest? So any of the greens are really great. So lettuces, spinach, arugula, mustard greens, all of those you have plenty of time to plant. So we're looking at, you know, that 65-ish days. Um, So read the seed packets because any of your seed packets should tell you days to maturity. And that's what you're looking for is anything that's going to be days to maturity within that time. You might be able to sneak in some sweet peas, some sugar snap peas. Um, some broccoli, like uh, sprouting broccoli, would still do well. Um, and then there's beets. Uh, kohlrabi is also a really nice thing to plant at this time of year. You might be able to get away with carrots still. Um, so there are certain carrots that take longer and shorter. So again, just look at that seed packet, and that will tell you um, where you're at for days to maturity. Awesome. Um, and okay, so these um, so much local food. And um, so what, uh, but also people can go to the farmer's market this time and buy in bulk. Uh, what type of tips do you have on preserving and buying in bulk? Well, so right now, I think everything, like I said, the seasons are colliding. It's a time of abundance. And it can be a little overwhelming if you're a first-time gardener and all of a sudden you have all this. Or you go to the farmer's market and you get a little carried away. So my first tip is, if in doubt, freeze it. Um, tomatoes, peppers, shredded zucchini can all be frozen without even blanching. Mm-hmm. Um, so you core the tomato, put it in a freezer bag, and you can make your sauce when you're ready in the winter. Like if you've got too much going on. Um, beans. Kale is another great one to blanch and then lay out dry on individually on a, in the freezer. And then you put it into a bag or a container for freezing. And it's so quick and you will have delicious food for all, you know, for the winter. It's really, it's really a great way to do it. And then if you want to get into canning um, and you have the time, go ahead and can. Um, you're going to be amazed at how great it tastes. It's, it's a really fun process. It's not scary. Um, and, for recipes to follow, if you're looking for like a safe, trusted spot to go look for lots of different recipes, the National Center for Home Food Preservation is out of Georgia, um, and they are a great resource, um, very, very science-backed. And then um, ball canning also is has got really trusted recipes out there. So we're down to almost our last minute. We didn't even mention chickens. So you want to talk about your chicken experience? <laughs> 
Oh, well, we love our chickens. Our backyard chickens are definitely a big part of the homestead. Um, and through this heat, we've been giving them lots of frozen corn. Mm. <laughs> um, so you can freeze extra corn pieces that maybe were cooked and you didn't eat. So get it off the cob or on the cob, freeze it. And it actually helps them cool off as well. And ice cubes in their water, um, that even helps them stay cool. Chickens have a harder time staying cool than they do staying warm in the winter. Because they're wearing down jackets, right? Mm, yeah, that's a that. All right. Well, uh, Michelle Brune, um, author of Small Scale Homesteading, A Sustainable Guide to Gardening, Keeping Chickens, Maple Syruping, Preserving the Harvest, and more. Uh, also blogs at forkinthedirt.com. So thanks so much for joining us. And now you are again at the uh, International Gardeners Conference here in Minneapolis. Here we are. So, um, so it's <laughs> wonderful vibes. So let's what did keep, you say, Laura? A wonderful vibes. Let's keep growing this this gardening and and bring it up and have have beautiful. No, we got to keep keep everybody excited about keeping on planting. A lot of new gardeners. We need to keep on gardening. That's for sure. Keep on gardening. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and today now we're talking about No Ordinary Joe. Um, joining us is Jerome Christensen, and he has uh, he wrote a book called No Ordinary Joe: Lessons from the Life of a Community Organizing uh, Community Organizing for Social Change. So, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Nah, wonderful. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, Jerome. You're on the Winona County uh, City Council. Yeah, I uh, I ran for council. Uh, last spring uh, or last fall and uh, got elected um whether or not i won uh, will be we, we're waiting to see <laughs> in terms of how things worked out but um been doing that i was was uh, been a journalist here in uh, winona for oh upwards of uh, four decades i got my start uh, by mistake and uh 1985, uh, for lack of uh, honest work, um, I started committing journalism and uh, been at it ever since, doing one thing or another. Retired as editor of the Daily News five years ago and still keep writing. Bad habits are hard to break. (laughs) So uh, tell us about your new book and why you wrote it. Well, it's it's about uh, Joe Morse. Um, Joe was a, uh, a local fellow, uh, grew up in, uh, Dakota, Minnesota, which is just down the, uh, down the river, about 20 miles from Winona. Uh, he was a Cotter graduate, uh, Cotter High School, for Catholic high school here, and went on from, uh, Cotter High, uh, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary to study for a priest, and to be a priest, and that was in... 1963, uh, but then uh, uh, the students for student non violent coordinating committee SNCC intervened in his life. Uh, he was subscribing to their newsletter, and uh, he got word and wind of Freedom Summer in 1964, and um, left the seminary for the summer. Uh, to uh, participate in that and uh, never turn back. It was his uh, his entree to a lifetime of acti- activism. And I knew I knew Joe since uh, about 
shortly after I got here in 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 eighty five and knew some of his other some of his uh, family, his uh, brother Steve, sister Anne, um, another sister uh, Julie. Um, whole family has always been uh, very active, but uh, Joe really set the bar high. So, what lessons can be learned from from Joe's? Alive and, and and first of all, tell us some. What were some of the activities? So he was active in 1964 Freedom Summer. What other things did Joe um, do? Give us a quick overview. Okay, he went. To, he went down. To, he signed up for Freedom Summer in '64. Did the training in um, in in July, um, and was posted to Meridian, Mississippi, which was. Uh, the uh, same locale that uh, the three uh, workers, uh, uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, had been murdered that same month, um, and so he was he was down there working in <clears throat> in that uh, in that area, and uh, he stayed on through Freedom Summer, doing voter registration and uh, other community organizing, organizing for Freedom Democratic Party. And uh, at the end of the summer, uh, as he put it, uh, there was still work to do. And uh, so he stayed on as a core Congress of Racial Equality organizer for uh, for a couple more years. And working in, uh, in uh, Meridian, Mississippi and the surrounding counties, uh, doing uh, setting up child care, um, doing a variety of things. Um, he went from there to um, to Madison, uh, where they lived for uh, for a while, and um, went from there to Boston, uh, where he was active in the Seabrook nuclear um, anti nuclear movement, stopping the Seabrook uh, reactor, uh, the clamshell movement up there, and at the same time, that's where he got involved with the um, with uh, working uh, to end uh, violence against women and working with uh, with men who were uh, batterers of their uh, spouses or or girlfriends and uh, founded uh, the first men's organization uh, to uh, to combat battering emerge was the name it went by and uh, he worked with that, was uh, active, active with that for um, the duration he was out there. Eventually moved back to uh, Minnesota, and that would have been in the early 80s. Um, get back to family. His, uh, his parents were getting older and, uh, and it, needed some, it needed some help. Um, and uh, you know, Warren got back here, and he was involved with the um, anti-nuclear movement up at uh, Prairie Island uh, with the, if you recall, the dry casks storage controversy in the late 80s and 90s where they wanted to put uh, uh, nuclear waste storage uh, adjacent to the Prairie Island uh, Indian Reservation. And he was uh, very active in that. Founded an organization down here, Bluffland Environmental Watch, which uh, worked uh, in in coordination with that, with the uh, Prairie Island group, and uh, also with um, 
uh, various uh, environmental uh, activities here. Uh, he was also, at the same time, it's easier to tell what Joe didn't do than what he did. <laughs> <laughs> he was active in, in uh, working with the uh, local women's resource center uh, to uh, in uh, anti-battering activities, and and in his later uh, later career, um, that was really a major focus. Um, he was involved, founded, and was active in organizing it uh, beyond tough guys, which was an education effort toward, aimed at uh, young men and boys uh, to respect. Uh, women and to um, develop a positive attitude, um, and uh, and so I know the those relationships. The, the Land Stewardship Project also called him a champion of the people, uh, champion of the land for the land. So, oh, what yeah. was some of his land work? Well, I was getting to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was he was he was active with the, with land stewardship in uh, in dealing with. Um, in, uh, in in promoting uh, local agriculture, small scale agriculture, um, and their work uh, to limit uh, the influence of uh, agribusiness and uh, large scale factory farms in the area, and he was also uh, very active in um, the uh, anti frac sand um, uh, frac sand mining was uh, being proposed. Uh, here in uh, in the Blufflands, um, really was instrumental in in, in working on drafting, uh, helping draft a local ordinance that uh, banned um, silica sand mining in uh, Winona County. So, uh, in in that respect, uh, in land stewardship was also very active with that. So like I say, it's, it's easier to say what Joe wasn't doing than what he was. <laughs> and so um, the, there's a lot on the Monona County factory farm fight. So you want to talk a little bit about the factory farm? Um, that's been ongoing. And really focusing on, uh, on our groundwater issues here. Um, Winona County is underlain by karst car, uh, type uh, topography, which is a uh, permeable limestone. And what happens is that um, uh, rainwater, which is slightly acid, percolates down through the soil and uh, literally dissolves the underlying bedrock. And that's where we get our cave systems, Niagara Cave, Mystery Cave, um, <clears throat> throughout. But it also means that um, anything that lands on top of the land has a pretty much a direct route to uh, to our groundwater. So when you start spreading manure um, and uh, you spread manure over a sinkhole, the next rain, that manure is going uh, right into your, uh, right into the aquifer. And um, most people don't want to drink cow manure. They don't? And you don't want to no, drink cow manure? People surprise, are just so fussy, surprise, aren't they? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I know. It's just a nice little flavoring agent. Who, 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 who's going to be bothered by that? Right. <laughs> or at least that's the argument that, we, that we've that we heard. Now, one that's, in order to uh, 
put some degree of uh, restraints on that. Uh, Winona County's had an animal unit cap, uh, which has put a limit on the number of uh, animals that can be located at any one farm location. And in order to limit the amount of manure that's being generated. And, of course, that gets that uh, we have a number of, well, not a num- large number, a few um, large uh, operators who would lo- who've been challenging that um, off and on ever since it was enacted. Right, and uh, I mean, I know there was an article, uh, the Daily Farm has been on an article in the Land Stewardship Project, and if people want to find out more, the Land Stewardship Project, you can just put in Winona County um, and say no to factory farms, and, and here, I mean, this has been decades of history to, to protect the oh, water, yeah. and it's been a long time. So, I mean, we have um, we have about two minutes left, and I want to um, I want to ask you about, do, do you think Joe believed that people had power? Joe's Joe's whole. If there's a message that I got from putting this book together, and, and it's basically all in Joe's words. Um, what I did was uh, took uh, the transcripts of uh, many hours of conversation that Doug Nopar uh, had taped with Joe before he died, and uh, took those conversations, which were random, and uh, with a lot of cut and paste editing put them into a narrative but if there's a message to be across it's it's listen to the people uh, the people who are closest to the issue know what the solution has to be and act on that and work on that and if you do that things happen and they'll be successful because you have the entire you have the weight of the people behind you and I think that that's uh, that's been demonstrated uh, in uh, in in so many ways: um, civil rights, uh, civil rights struggle, the uh, environmental struggle, where things not always entirely, but uh, at least half a loaf, as often is is more often than not, come out when people listen to what uh, what what needs to be done. Listen and organize. Listen and organize. And so, um, Jerome uh, Christensen, so you, you wrote this book, and uh, do you have a like a WordPress site so if people want more information? Yeah, um, you can go to uh, my my WordPress site. It's it's a jungle out there. Um, I think if you Google that, you'll it'll it'll take you to it to it with my name. Um, the other the URL is Jerome Christensen at. Uh, um, WordPress.com. Great. Well, I thank so. you. I thank you for coming on, on uh, for being with us. So the book is uh, No Ordinary Joe's Joe Lessons from the Life of a Community uh, Organizer for Change. Um, and you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio. The author is Jerome Christensen. So I thank you so much for uh, being with us. I also thank uh, Michelle Bruin, the author of Small Scale Homesteading, for joining us um, earlier in the show. And I thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Have an awesome day, week, life.